0: We're going to cover verses 19, probably through 28 today, but we're not going to cover everything that I think merits being discussed in these verses this week. This will be another section. We're going to break this section up into a, into a two week study. And this week, I really want to point out a, a theme or a constant through these 25 chapters that it's been a few weeks since I've directly addressed this and brought it back up. So I want to bring it back up so it'll be at the forefront of our mind. Because again, as we go through this study in Genesis, God is faithful. He's sovereign. Uh, God is God. We've talked about that over and over again. And specifically, we've also looked at glimpses of the gospel, foreshadowings of the gospel that we've had throughout. But we have repeatedly, consistently gone back to what God said in Genesis chapter 3 when he said to the serpent, you will bruise his heel and he will bruise or crush your head. And since that point, everything that comes after through these 25 verses of Genesis so far, but also throughout the rest of scripture, everything that comes after is the unfolding of that word, of that promise, of that guarantee. And we know that ultimately the seed of the woman that does crush the serpent is Christ himself. And we know that Christ came from that line that began really officially with Abraham and the promises given to Abraham. But we have that phrase, you know, your seed and her seed. So the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman And ultimately, you could say we have, well, we've got God's seed or the promised seed. And then we have Adam's seed or ultimately Satan's seed, because we have portions of scripture later elsewhere in scripture where Jesus tells the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. So we have this concept of lineage that there are God's people and then there are the enemy's people. There are the wheat and there are the tares. And so I kind of want to pick up on that idea of lineage and kind of unpack that a little bit as we go through these verses today. Because now we are fully focused upon Isaac and Rebekah. And Rebekah is going to conceive twins, Jacob and Esau. And so we have this lineage, this promised line that began with Abraham. And then came Isaac, and now will come Jacob, but Jacob has a brother, Esau, that we'll discuss more of 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 what goes on there. But Esau will eventually go and and he will he will marry a woman of the Ishmaelites. Well Ishmael came from Hagar, not from Sarah. So you have a you have the children of the slave woman, Hagar. But it's Jacob that the blessings of God, the promises of God are all placed upon Jacob and Esau is by, uh, by all accounts, Esau is an outcast when it comes to being of the family of God. He goes and marries an Ishmaelite woman and begins his own little kingdom. And so there's much to discuss as we continue to, to go into the life of Jacob and the life of Esau. But today we are just here at the Inception of this. And so let's begin in verse 19. <clears throat> These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramaean of Padden Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramaean to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived, the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so we see this lineage, we see this line, the promised line continuing, Abraham, Isaac, and before the children are even born, God tells Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from from within you will be divided. The one will be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so we see God's intended purposes that will be carried out. And God's plans are announced before the children are even born. And so we know that there will be a lineage that continues with Jacob. And then even though Jacob and Esau were twins, we know there's a little bit of a foreshadowing that, well, there's going to be a division. Esau will go one way and Jacob another. Two nations are within you and they will be divided. Just by way of, of, of just some practical thoughts that we may have as we read through this. And if you're, if you're a mother yourself or, or even a father, but if you're a mother and you think to yourself, well, if I was carrying twins and I went to God and inquired, why is it thus? You know, why is this a, a difficult pregnancy? Why are they struggling within me? And, and this was the, this was the announcement and the declaration of God. Well, there's two nations in your womb. And they're going to be divided. And the older will actually serve the younger. Well, there will be a lot to unpack there. But some questions that we, that we can ask ourselves when it comes to our own children. Do we trust God's plans for our own children? Rebecca may have had to contemplate that. Well, do I, do I trust that God's plan for my children is good? Is it good that there's two nations within me and they will be divided? Is that a good thing? Do I do I trust that God has this under control and that his plans are good and that his will is good? Do we see God's goodness in all things? Well, okay, I mean, God, you say that this is your plans and you're a good God, but how is your goodness going to come forth out of these two nations being divided, and they're being division, and they're being uh, friction and frustration, even with our two sons? And ultimately, do we submit to God's will in all things? But I do want to kind of hit on the life of our children because I think any of us who have children know that 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 when when it comes to our children. Our children's well-being, our children's safety, our children's future. When we think about our children growing up and having the opportunity to pursue their goals or pursue their dreams and kind of learn and grow and become strong and then stand on their own two feet, we we look forward to the day where our children become adults and they they are building their own lives, so to speak, because we know that ultimately, again, God is over all things. And so even when our children are building a life of their own, We say that it's only by God's grace that they are able to build a life of their own. But when it comes to our offspring, we tend to get very serious and we tend to get very emotional because we're very attached to our children. We we only want the best for our children. And so imagine that right out of the gate, you're told your two children are two nations and they'll be divided. Well, that might bring a certain level of heartache to you. I don't want that to be the case. I don't want there to be division between our children. I don't. I don't want there to be division in our family. I, I, I don't want this to be the case. And and so right out of the gate, it's wow. There's there's a lot that's packed into this short statement that God gave to Rebecca. That just on a in a on a human level and in a in a practical sense, if we had to to digest that information, you can see where Rebecca had a lot to chew on. Isaac had a lot to chew on there. But what about when it comes to our own children? Do we understand and are we able to rejoice that before we even knew that we had a child on the way, God had their lives ordained and God had their days numbered and planned out before we even knew we had a baby on the way. Are we able to rejoice in that? Are we able to, to, in a sense, to To, to take our hands of possession off of our own children and say, you know what? They're, they're not mine. Ultimately, God, they're yours to do as you see fit. Are we able to do that? Or do we look at our children and we say, mine, I'm going to do as I see fit with my children and I'm going to do, I'm going to parent them the way that I want to parent them. Are we able to say, it's good. It is good that God has ordained their life and I have not ordained their life. It is good that God is ultimately in control of their entire life and that I'm not in control of their entire life. It is good that God is over their spiritual eternal state and that I'm not ultimately over their spiritual eternal state. Can we take our hands off of our children and celebrate and rejoice that God, you're in control? Our children are yours to do as you see fit. Now, when we, when we start down that path, there's a part of us, we, we might get almost fearful or we might get scared to start contemplating some of that because we say, well, yeah, but they are our children. And so, no, I can't, I can't just take my hands off of them and say, God, they're yours to do as, as you see fit. And I will submit to your will because I, I, I you know, I, I'm their parent. And to that, I would say, exactly. When we take a step back and take our hands off and we say, God, they're yours to do as you see fit. One of the first things that should come to our minds is, God, for whatever reason, your good and perfect plan included me as their parent. That's one of the first things that should be cemented. The reason that you are the parent of your child is because God saw fit to give that child you as a parent. That was part of God's plan for that child. So be responsible and honor God with that gift. The child is not ultimately yours. Our children are not ultimately ours. But it was part of God's good and perfect plan to give the children that we have to me and Kristen and to give the children that you have to you. That was part of his plan for that child. Now, why would God give your children you as a parent? To raise them in the fear and instruction of the Lord. To teach them, to honor him with how you raise them up. If God has plans for your children once they are adults, and he does, he has plans for your children now. And if if they live to see adulthood, if God has plans for them on into adulthood, Then his plans to shape them as an adult included you being their parent, training them, teaching them, preparing them for adulthood in a godly way. Don't squander that. Don't waste that. Because here we see plainly, before they were ever even born, before they came onto the scene, God's plan for them God's will for what would come after them. Two nations. Well, a nation isn't made up of just one person. So two nations that would come from these two individuals, all of that was was in the picture as well. But it was all done. It was all settled before they were ever even born. It's a very humbling thing to sit down and try to process And I say try to process it because I don't think we could ever fully understand it. But it's a beautiful thing just to sit down and try to process. God, why in your goodness and in your grace did you see fit to bless us with a child or two children or three or five? Because when we understand biblically what a, What an important and what a vital role marriage and family plays within the kingdom of God. Then we will see much more clearly how awesome of a gift it is, but also how great a responsibility it is to raise our children. In the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. And also to be able to say. God, you gave these children to us. They are not ours, ultimately. They are yours. And we know, we know that you have a plan for their life, whether they live to be, and I'm not saying this to be, to be rude or to try to bring up stuff that's going to make you hurt or, or to bring up anybody's past. I don't know everybody's past here, but the, I'm just saying this because whether our children live to be five, live to be 10, live to be 20, live to be 40, 80, God has a plan, a good and perfect plan for the life that he has given them, however long or short that is. And God has a good and perfect plan for giving them to us, to the parents that he has assigned the children. God has a good and perfect plan in that. And when we are able to say, God, we, we don't know exactly what your plans are for our child, but we praise you that you've given us the, uh, the opportunity to raise them in ways that glorify you and to teach this child that they exist for your glory. And we will raise them and we will nurture them and we will parent them to the best of our ability in ways that only honor and glorify you. But again, just some questions that, do we trust God's plans for our children? At the end of the day, you might think that you've got your kid's future planned out. You've got no idea what God has planned for your child. Sometimes we think we have our own plans figured out and then we learn, oh, I don't even know what my own plans are or what God's plans are for my own life. Are we able to see God's goodness in all things, even if it includes suffering, even if it includes familial hardship and division, and ultimately simply do we submit to his will? It was the will of God for there to be division between Jacob and Esau. It was the will of God for the older to serve the younger. That was not the pattern of things. That was not the natural course of things in this time. The older, the oldest, was the one who inherited the family blessing, who would inherit the the largest portion, the largest chunk of the inheritance. But in this case, it is said what? The older will serve the younger. And when you look at God's track record, you say, well, that was, this wasn't the only time that that happened. David, people didn't even know that, that David was there. Oh, he's, he's still out in the field. He's the youngest of all the sons and he's, well, go get him. And David was the one that God chose and he was the youngest. Jesus himself, Jesus didn't come as a king commanding people to bow down to him. Jesus came as a babe in a manger because there was no room in the inn. That's not the way it was supposed to work. That's not the natural way of things. That's not the way that we would want things to work. But God definitely has a track record of of upsetting the traditions of man. God has a way of turning the world upside down, if you will, because he's God and he can do as he sees fit. When he sees fit and how he sees fit. And so we have Jacob and Esau here. We see this lineage, but one, one last note before we start unpacking, unpacking this thought of lineage. If you caught this, I'm sure you did. Said that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Why? Rebecca was barren. Does that sound familiar? Sarah was barren. Sarah was barren. God told Abram and Sarah you will have a son. You have a child. But Sarah was barren. Abraham and Sarah tried to go around that. They brought in Hagar. Ishmael was born and God said no, it's not going to be Ishmael. I will give you a son. And Sarah Y'all know what I'm about to say, because I repeated it so many times. Sarah, barren and past the age of childbearing, conceived. Abraham, a 100 years old, father to child. Why? Because that was God's will. That was God's plan. And God is a God who brings into existence things that don't exist. And that includes life in a lifeless womb. A nation where there was no nation. Abraham, I'll make you the father of a great nation. Israel didn't exist. God called them into existence. But Isaac here, Isaac and Rebecca—they didn't. Rebecca didn't say, "Hey, go to the go to the handmaiden or go to the slave girl." And no, Isaac cried out to God on behalf of his wife, and she conceived. I wonder where Isaac learned his pattern of faith. I wonder who he, who he learned of God's promises from. I would, I would venture to say it was probably his father, Abraham. And now for a second time, listen, the, the holy lineage of the people of God at its beginning, at its beginning, God called Abraham the son of pagan parents, called Abraham. That line continued through a barren womb. That's a miracle. Amen? That line continued through another barren womb. Make no mistake about it. The fact that there is the term God's people, the fact that a God's people even exists is a miracle. It is the sovereign act of God that he has a people for his own possession. It is only by the grace and the mercy of God that there exists a people of God, a God's people. Even at its inception, Israel as a nation was birthed by God's grace. He called out Abraham and said, I will make of you a great nation. You'll be the father of a great nation. And in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Through the barren womb of Sarah and through the barren womb of Rebecca, offspring were born. When we look ahead to Jesus Christ, He did not, He was not born of a barren womb, but He was born of a virgin womb, which is also an impossibility, naturally speaking. And so it is no different. Again, you see a consistency that God's, God's ways surely are not our ways. God's ways are above our ways and God's power and God's will cannot be thwarted or hindered in any way, shape or form by the natural way of things. And we ought to rejoice in that. Now we come to where I want to kind of unpack this concept of lineage. He told the serpent, there will be enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. And you don't have to turn all the way back there. I, I, I wrote this down, so I hope that this will flow well. Ano- another interesting note, and I'm not going to try to unpack it because I haven't studied it. I'm just going to be honest. I haven't studied it out deeply enough to be able to say with certainty, oh, this is what that means. But there is another thing that's repeated throughout these uh, first 25 chapters of Genesis that I was reminded of and made a note of. But let's go all the way back to Adam real quick, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. Cain murdered Abel. Why? Because Abel offered a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. And so right out of the gate, you could say, well, well, Abel was was living a life that was pleasing and acceptable to God. Cain was living in rebellion to God. So you have this, you have this godly line, and then you have an ungodly line. And then after Abel was murdered, Seth was born. And so you have Seth and Cain. And again, if you go back and read the first few chapters of Genesis, that's exactly how the author of Genesis unpacks it for us. He says, this is, this is, these are the generations of Adam. And then it goes Adam, Seth, and then a long list of names all the way up through Noah and then we get to the flood but we also have that lineage of Cain and it kind of unpacks Cain's lineage and from Cain we had Laman who was the first person to take two wives for himself and the first person to boast of his murders and so let's start there Adam then you have Seth and Cain from Seth from Seth you have Enoch or Enoch depending on how you want to pronounce his name but Enoch walked with the Lord and then he was not He was just taken up. And so we have that of note in the lineage of Seth. And then from that line came Noah. So let's pause at Noah. You have Cain, you have Lamech. And then from Lamech, you come to the days of Noah, where everything was just corrupt and evil on the face of the earth. And Noah found grace or found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, were all preserved and saved on the ark. From Noah, you have Shem. And then from the line of Shem, you get to Abram, who would become Abraham. But there was a cursed son, Ham. So you have Noah and you have Ham. From the line of Ham comes Canaan, which is the promised land. For the Israelites, but Canaan was cursed. So there's a promise in there. God is saying, "I promise that your enemies will be defeated and you will possess the land of your enemies." There's a promise of God there. But but you also have Nimrod, who was a great mighty man, and it was it was Nimrod who you could say he kind of spearheaded the whole idea for the Tower of Babel. So you have Noah, Shem to Abraham, and then you have Ham, Canaan, Nimrod. Now, I want to backtrack just a bit to point out this other connection. When Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, the angels with the flaming swords were put on the east of the garden. When Cain was cut off from God, he traveled east. When Lot separated from Abram, he went east. When all of the other sons of Abram were given gifts and sent away from Isaac, like we talked about last week, when all of the sons were given gifts and sent away, they were sent away to the east. And so there, there is this pattern of people who are cut off from God, people who are put away from the people of God. There's this connection to east, east, east over and over again. Noah, Shem, to Abraham. From Abraham, obviously, we have Isaac, and then from Isaac, Jacob. Ham, Canaan, Nimrod, Tower of Babel, people are scattered, the languages are confused, and the people are scattered through, through uh, throughout the earth. You have Ishmael, who was born of Abraham, but Abraham and Hagar, and they were sent away. And then you have the other sons of Abraham, and again, they all went East, and then ultimately we're going to have Esau, and Esau takes a wife from the Ishmaelites, and so that kind of cements his place in that side of the lineage here. And so, even even from the beginning, it seems that you there is this lineage, there is this line that we can trace that goes all the way to. The person and the finished work of Christ. If you were to open the Gospel of Matthew, what does the Gospel of Matthew begin with? A genealogy that does trace Jesus himself. That lineage traces all the way back to Adam, the seed of the woman. And it would seem that we also have this lineage of people who are just constantly in rebellion against God. The enemies of God's people. Those that wish to see. God's people wiped off the face of the earth. And those who wish to silence. The voice of God as it were. Or the testimony of God's goodness. And we see that. Throughout. And we see that. God didn't ask anybody's approval. To do things this way. God did not take counsel with anybody to see if this was a good idea or not. God is bringing about his good and perfect purposes out of the good pleasure of his own will. Notice, even when he tells Rebecca, there's two nations within you and they will be divided. He doesn't say, is that okay with you and Isaac? Or does that sound like a good idea to you? He just tells her, this is the way it's going to be. Perhaps she could have said, well, God, that's not fair. I want, I want both of them to be equally blessed. I want both of them to, to work together, to, to, to serve together. I, I want them to be united. I don't want there to be division. Suppose she tried to answer back to God. The rebuttal back to her may have been, who are you to answer to God? Will the say, will the thing formed say to the one who formed it, why have you made me this way? Mm. There are things ultimately in this life that, that we don't get to demand an answer from God. If any of us have ever lost a loved one that we would say we lost them too soon. Or if any of us have ever been affected by a tragedy of any sort. We're tempted to look to God and demand an answer. God, why? Tell me why. Tell me exactly why you did this. Why have you done this thing? And so again, I go back to the questions that I posed earlier. Are we able to see God's goodness in all things? And ultimately what it comes down to is do we submit to God's will? That whatever God does decide to bring to pass ultimately is for our good and His glory. And I understand that there are many things that we could, we could throw objections out there and say, well, what about this? Is, can that be used for His glory? What about this? Could that be used for good? What about this? But whatever the objections are, the promises of God towards his children still remains. All things work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That promise of God trumps any objection that man who came from dust could throw out there. Suppose Isaac and Rebekah would have had a rebuttal. The plans and the will of God, that which he had ordained, would still have remained true and it would have been carried out in that way. So do we trust God's plans? Do we submit to his will? He didn't ask for approval, nor does he need to. He didn't ask for thoughts or take counsel with anyone, nor does he need to. May we never be so foolish as to think, well, God, I wish you would have checked with me on that one first before you did that. It is tough. I'm not saying that it is easy. But by God's grace, each one of us, he will bring us to a place where even if we think we could never do it, He will humble us and He will teach us Himself how to rejoice even in the midst of great suffering, even in the midst of great trial. He will teach us and train us how to rejoice even in what happens in the life of our children that we might not appreciate or that we might not feel like we can rejoice over. Whatever His hand brings to pass, He will train us and He will sanctify us and teach us to rejoice in His good and perfect Plans. All of this, the outworking of this lineage, good and bad, God's people, Satan's people, Christ's people, and Adam's people, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. All of this outworking of these lineages ultimately goes back to what God said in Genesis three there will be enmity, there will be friction, you will be enemies your seed and the seed of the woman. Your seed and the seed of the woman. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, if you would, please. Excuse me. Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed into your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And so the servant said, Then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, no, less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. The wheat and the tares grow together until the time of harvest. It has always been this way. There has been God's people, wheat, and there's been the enemy's people, the tares, from the beginning. And they grow together. And there is coming a great day of harvest. And there will be a great judgment. But rest in this. There will be no mixture between the wheat and the tares. The wheat will be gathered for the harvest. The wheat will be put into the barn, the storehouses of the Lord. And the tares, only the weeds, only the tares will be gathered to be burned. And there will be no cross-contamination. There will be no overlap. Some of the weed is not going to end up with the tares. Some of the tares is not going to end up with, with the wheat. God knows who His people are. Paul told that to Timothy. The Lord knows those who are His. Rest assured. This is a sure saying. The Lord knows those who are His. The seed of the serpent, the seed of the enemy will be gathered and will be judged perfectly, eternally judged. When his head was crushed, he was fully defeated and all of his followers, all of his family, all of his seed was crushed with him. The seed that is born of the imperishable word of God, the wheat, God's people, will be gathered and put into the barn. But you you start to see this concept, this idea of God's people, people of the world, or God's people, Satan's people. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. To make it even more clear, turn to John 8, if you will. This is language that, that Christ himself employed and used. <clears throat> John 8, starting verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. is because you are not of God. And so you see this this lineage, now I'm going to use the phrase, the lineage of promise, the promise seed, because of what is said in the New Testament. Those of the promise, the children of the promise are the children of Abraham. It's not just ethnic Israel, it's the children of promise that are the children of Abraham. So all of this is fulfilling God's word from Genesis 3. All of this is helping to, to build up to the moment where the head of the serpent is crushed. The wheat and the tares grow together. There are people walking this earth today, believe, we would simply say, if you're a believer, you're a child of God. If you're an unbeliever, the wrath of God still abides upon you. And those who reject truth, those who will not acknowledge the truth are of their father, the devil. And all of this serves to show and to point to the fact that the head of the serpent was crushed. The serpent and all of his seed will be crushed, will be judged eternally, forever. The seed of the woman, which is ultimately pointing to Christ, Christ and his brethren, Christ and the family of God will be gathered up into the barn, gathered up into the storehouses of the Lord, forever, eternally in glory with Him. Finally, all of this is fulfilling the promise to Abraham. If you say, "Well, that that concept of the line of God and the line of Satan, or the line of God's people and the line of God's enemies," I don't really know that. God, you know, that's that's hard to fathom. It's hard to process. And what about, what about those who right now would have to be categorized as, right now, because they're unbelieving, they'd have to be categorized as, I guess, God's enemies, children of the evil one. You know, what about them? Is there any hope for them? Yes. Ultimately, we don't know what God's plans are for anybody else around us. We don't know what God's plans are for any of the lost that are around us. We don't know if today may be their day of salvation, or next week, or next month, or next year. We don't know the ones who will be brought into the family of God. But what we do know is this. There was a promise given to Abraham that was plain and that was clear. And that promise given to Abraham is called the gospel later by Paul himself in Galatians. He says the gospel was preached to Abraham. And what was he referring to? In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And all of this outworking of this lineage, even the lineage that includes Cain, Lamech, Ham, Cain and Nimrod, Ishmael, Esau, even that lineage and the lineage of people that we would look at today and say, they're just ungodly people. They're just wicked people. They're wicked. Their children are wicked. Their grandchildren are wicked. I mean, they just, that's just a bad family tree right there. All of that is still the outworking of what will become a part of the promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. And we see glimpses of this in Acts chapter 2, but I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 9. We know that there is a promise from God in the Old Testament from the prophet Hosea that those who were not my people, I will call my people. Those who were not the beloved, I will call beloved. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What is that? That's the fulfillment. That's the outworking of the promise of Abraham that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through him when Christ comes and He's crucified and He's buried and He's risen again, at that point, all who call upon the name of the Lord, regardless of what nation you're from, regardless of what language you speak, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 9, verse 25, as indeed He says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said, To them you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we we would have been like Sodom and would have become like Gomorrah. Romans 10, you jump down to verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the outworking of the promise given to Abraham In Genesis, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I know you've heard me repeat it over and over again. And here we go again. All of scripture is one great big story of God's redemption of his people. It's all connected. And if we can grasp God's goodness, his grace, his mercy, his promises here in the first few chapters of Genesis. Then we will start to see that same goodness, that same mercy, that same grace throughout scripture, that same work of redemption, that same work of grace throughout the scripture. And you say, well, what does this mean for us today? How is this supposed to help my faith? How is this supposed to help me grow? You see God's goodness, his faithfulness, his grace, his mercy, his love. You see his wrath. You see his justice. You see God as he is. As he has revealed himself. Just in the first few chapters. Of Genesis. And I'll give you a spoiler. He's the same God throughout scripture. Genesis to Revelation. I'll give you another spoiler. He's still the same God today. So when we see God who steadfastly keeps his promises. When we see a sovereign God whose plans and whose will cannot be hindered by anything on earth because he reigns above all the earth and he does as he pleases on earth and in heaven. When we see God who is faithful to his people. When we see God over and over again show his steadfast love to his people. When we see God perfectly judge sin. When we see God bring judgment for sin in any way, shape, or form. When we see God as He is and we see His consistency and we say, well, if He was that way then, He's still that way now, I should have great confidence in my God. I should have great steadfast faith in His promises because if He is unchanging, His promises are unchanging. If He was sovereign then, He's sovereign now. If nothing could stay his hand then, nothing can stay his hand now. If he was a God of grace then, he's a God of grace now. If he was a just God then, he's a just God now. And the more we get to know God our Father, God our Creator, our faith will grow. And the more we get to know Christ our Redeemer, our faith will grow and our confidence and our salvation will grow. And our joy will increase. The more we come to understand God, the father and who he is, the more we come to understand Christ and who he is and how great a salvation we've been given. The more we come to understand the miraculous work of the spirit in raising us up to new life and sealing us until we were, until we've received our inheritance. The more we come to know God, our joy will increase and we will be able to rejoice in all things and we will be able to trust God fully. Regardless of what our earthly circumstances look like, whether in suffering or whether in times of ease, the more we know our God, the more sure and steadfast our faith will be. And so I pray that we will be strengthened, that we will rejoice, that we will be caused to think deeply on these things. That when we ask ourselves questions like, do I trust God with His plans for my life? Do I trust God with his plans for my children? Do we see God's goodness in all things? Are we fully submitted to his will and rejoicing in his will? I pray that by his grace, we would get brought to the point where we say, that's a no brainer. We will rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances for that is the will of God for his children. So thank you for listening. As always, I pray that